Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Banesh Maid and this week we look back with a series of two episodes that attempt to explore the music, the man and the myth of composer Sir Harrison Birtwistle in his 80th year in 2014. There is a lot written and discussed about classical music, but ultimately it's the music which needs to talk to you, to connect, to take you somewhere. Often that music is not made alone. Good collaboration is a, is a game of ping pong. And in collaboration, you always want a good collaboration, is they give you something within the context of what you're talking about, but even more. On this first episode, we'll learn more about the composer through some of his biggest collaborators. To understand the composer and his process, we speak to critic and author Fiona Maddox. Her book, Harrison Birtwistle, Wild Tracks, attempts to understand his love of music, food and the countryside as he reached this milestone birthday. We're in the Royal Opera House to talk about Harrison Birtwistle. Uh, this seems like a very good place to start, though. I, I presume you got to see some of his productions here. Well, it's the, the place that Gawain was premiered and, and returned with great success for revivals, and also the Minotaur, which astonishingly was sold out at the last revival. You wrote this book <laughs> on quite a, quite a big, um, incredible figure in, in classical music. How did it come about? It, it was rather like um, the way people suddenly realised the millennium was approaching. About the day before, people suddenly said, oh, it's, it's the millennium. Equally here, the publisher, Faber, prompted by me, suddenly realised, oh, it's Harrison Birtwistle's 80th birthday, which I'm sure is on the same level as the millennium in terms of musical importance. Um, we thought it would be impossible to write a, a biography itself in that time and maybe he wouldn't want it anyway but the idea came about to have conversations and and we've called the book a conversation diary because sometimes two or three times a week I'd go to Wiltshire to see him and just talk about what he wanted to talk about that day so it wasn't in any sense chronological though there's biographical early childhood elements but it was very much trying to see how he spends his working life day to day as a composer. He kept, he kept saying, I don't want to read this book, I trust you, he said, which is a great burden of responsibility and one that I'm rather nervous about. You've mentioned a lot of stuff already, but maybe set the scene. I think the place he can be found a lot of the time is his kitchen or if it's not absolutely freezing or raining, his garden. 
both of which are en route to his studio at the end of his garden, which is where he works, and that's a wooden hut on raised from the ground. You go up steps to it, and it's it's a it's like a little um, den of, of of warmth, which is his alone. I think he said it was seventy two steps from the kitchen, the, uh, the back door, to the studio at the end of the garden, and on those steps he would look at his trees that he was pruning or plants that are growing or fruit that needs picking and those rhythms of life are, 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 are absolutely part of his daily routine and he loves to cook he loves to grow things he loves to cook things and the combination is as crucial to his life as, as writing music I think and probably in many ways he brings the same freshness and excitement to pulling up a bunch of radishes as to writing an incredibly difficult part for solo trumpet. Is, is he a person who kind of considers writing music like a, an, an office job in the sense of doing a certain number of hours every day? Even if he doesn't always do those hours or those pages or that number of minutes worth of music, I think he does take that very seriously. And there's no one less likely that you'd find in an office <laughs> behind a little desk with a little computer screen. He, he does. He works on huge sheets of his own self-designated, self-designed manuscript paper, which he pins on big boards in front of him. And he works with pencils, rulers, uh, pencil rubbers, even clocks and a, a sort of stopwatch to, to work out how long something's going to take or um, metronomes, obviously, to, to work out the speed. He has a keyboard, which is an ele- electronic keyboard of no great... I mean, it sounds rather tinny to my ear. It's, it's, not, um, it's not beautiful, but he, he doesn't work at the keyboard at all, But as far as I know. I don't know that he works to an absolute timetable, but he I would guess that he likes to be at his desk by a certain time soon after breakfast and will work through till I think the exhaustion of sitting in one position force the end of a working day. And then he likes to cook. What one of the things that we seemed to talk about each week I went was was his quinces which were growing in the garden and which uh, on, on on trees obviously and that he was pruning and and which finally pre- came to fruition about the, the time that our conversations ended in um, early autumn. When, you've, when you're sort of getting towards the end of the process, I'm interested to know what sort of conclusions and dots did you start joining, maybe ones that even the composer didn't realise were there? I had no sense in which I could make things happen. I mean, I was grateful that the Quinces did their thing and produced themselves and after being talked about for nearly six months ended up being in the bowl on the kitchen table where we were talking and would indeed end up being made into jam I thought thank you quinces that sounds laughable but one of the other things that was going on during that period was that he had started a big work for piano and orchestra and that was another of the the strands running through one of the things that each week in, in addition to examining the garden or the weather or the fish pond in the garden we, we talked about how he was progressing with the piano concerto. He, he was just at the point of nearly, of, of seeing an end in sight and beginning to find a title for it. So his generosity in all respects was, and also his modesty, but someone who's achieved so much and yet could still be so full of self-doubt, that was very, very touching. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Food, this wine is my best. Yours, 
born the 15th of July 1935, over 80 years ago, was Sir Harrison Birtwistle, or Harry, to his friends. But let's attempt to learn more about the composer and his upbringing through a collaborator who shared the same surroundings, singer Sir John Tomlinson. The part of Northern England where I come from, and where coincidentally Harry Birtwistle comes from as well, Accrington is situated in, in northeast Lancashire, about 20 miles north of Manchester. A place like Accrington and Oswald Twistle, where I was brought up, were textile towns when I was a boy. Uh, they were, there were rows upon rows of terraced houses. There in the valleys, there's the, the factories, the mills, the factories, quite a few pubs, a lot of Methodist chapels. Uh, I was brought up as a Methodist, a strong Methodist. Sometimes you'd have two Methodist chapels facing one another across Union Road, the main road. Thousands of terraced houses. And uh, it was, um, you know, a very industrial landscape, mainly textiles. Mining, manufacturing, and the vast majority of people who, who lived there were, were working people, people who went down the street in their clogs at quarter to eight in the morning when, they, you know, uh, when work started and uh, came back home. The Industrial Revolution started in Lancashire, you know, I mean, a couple of hundred years before. That's where an, an awful lot of uh, it happened. George Hargreaves, who invented famously the spinning jenny, one of the uh, mechanical developments for the textile lived was born and lived in Oswald Twistle. Now in the 50s of course all this started to fall apart and it's now very much a post-industrial uh, landscape up there. The work for te- textiles went over to the Far East. To cut a long story short, Lancashire was to some extent de-industrialised and the mills were run down. They were used for other more mundane products like dog biscuits or chest expanders and all sorts of things I remember and so I suppose it was very much a society sort of in uh, in industrial decline that's as I remember it when I was a boy everything was black you know the 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 railways were trundling along the whole time pumping out the the black smoke the factories were pumping out black smoke all the houses were simply black and now when you go up there there there's the lovely original Uh, millstone grit stone you know which is a lovely stone so that's all been restored. Elgar Howarth conducted the Gawain and the Green Knight to start with and uh, I suppose in the canteen at Covent Garden there would would be Elgar Howarth, there'd be Harrison Birchall and there'd be me reminiscing about Lancashire you know we're all sort of northerners so there was a little bit of a a northern mafia going on in those days but what what is northerness that's a that's a question I think straightforwardness I think honesty not the most diplomatic, probably. Very good heart, very friend, basically friendly, uh, shooting from the hip a bit. At its best, I think, certainly in Harry's case, he's extremely clear-thinking. So opening Bert Whistle at 80 at the Barbican on May the 16th, 2014, was a concert hall staging of the composer's iconic opera of the 1990s, Gawain. This marked the first collaboration between Bert Whistle and poet David Harzant. I'll speak to David in just a moment, but first academic Jonathan Cross on the success of this relationship, followed by a follow-on thought from the composer himself on the myth and ideas behind the music. I think for any composer, finding the right librettist is, is a difficult job, and when, when you hit the right one, 
you stick you stick with him or her. So this was the first time that these two had collaborated on Gawain, Harsant and Birtwistle, and they've subsequently produced uh, a, a large number of very important pieces. The minor tour is one, but also song cycles and, and so on and so forth. There's something very important about that relationship. He knows that the ideas that the librettist is working with are in tune with his own ideas. He knows he can work with him. He knows the librettist is going to deliver the kind of text that he can set. Harsent, too, is interested in these ancient tales with a kind of ritualistic way of presenting narratives rather than it being more prosaic, let's say. So, yeah, the ideas and the way of working of these two figures, though very different, are clearly very much in tune with the results that we, we, we see in here. They sort of found me, the subject matters, and, um, and, the, and, uh, and the subject matters of, of these intrinsically basic, you know, fundamental fairy storing, the way of telling stories. And in a way, it was given me, and, um, and, it, and they chose me. I don't want to find um, a sort of psychological... It, it, in the end, it's about music. And um, I don't want to, the subject matters to get in the way of, of, of it. And, um, and then there's a question of identifying the sort of music that I think I write that's, that would suit the material. Many people ask me this question about how do you find the subject matters, but they find me, uh, or they found me very early on. Yeah. And um, it seems to also that you can deal with the, the, the subject the sort of subjects I deal with, you can't do it in, in sort of ordinary, what you call spoken theatre of that. The idea of myth and the uh, thing is one thing helps the other in the way that it's expressed. We'll hear more from Jonathan Cross in the next episode and more from the composer himself later on. Now to the University of Roehampton to meet up with its professor of creative writing and the librettist to Gwaine, the Minotaur and many more collaborations, David Harzant. He telephoned me out of the blue. Uh, I got a phone call one day from Harry saying, would you like to write an opera with me? And I said, yes. I'd seen Punch and Judy, which I thought was a fantastic piece of work. The reason that Harry called me was that I had written a book-long sequence of poems called Mr. Punch. And in reviewing that book for The Observer, uh, Peter Porter, the Australian poet, had drawn parallels between the book and Harry's opera Punch and Judy. And um, Harry, I guess, had seen the review. uh, And I suppose when he got the book, liked what he saw and uh, liked what he read and called me. So I said, yes, okay, (laughs) what's it about? And he said, "Um, I want to do an operatic version of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And of course, for any English poet, that's a benchmark (laughs) uh, poem. We then had several meetings to talk about the the piece. And it was, I think, after about the third meeting, uh, as Harry was leaving, I said, oh, by the way, where's where's it going on? I sort of thought, well, the drill hall, perhaps, which is where I saw Punch and Judy, and he said, well, the Royal Opera House main stage. <laughs> so I was, um, I was very pleased <laughs> by that notion, yeah. So, so it's obviously something you're proud of, but something that was a very steep learning curve. It was, yes. In fact, I think there was a point after I'd started writing, maybe I'd been working for about a week, when something occurred to me, and I phoned Harry and said, I'm will there be a chorus. Uh, <laughs> what I realised I was doing, and it's never been otherwise, really, Uh, was writing a stage play that would in fact be set to music. Uh, But what will happen is Harry and I will have 
quite lengthy conversations about the piece and the way it's going to go. With the Minotaur, for example, we immediately came together on the fact that we didn't want it to be um, overpopulated. When we were talking about how the Minotaur might open, we both, I mean, I'm not quite sure who said it first, but it was almost as if the other person had, had completed the sentence. You know, why don't we have her on her own, on the beach, waiting for the ship to come in that's carrying the Innocents and, and Theseus? I wanted to delve maybe a little bit deeper into how you approach setting these tales, fables, myths, stories. Well, I think it's occasionally, I used never to accept commissions for poems. You know, somebody would say, I'd like to commission you to write a poem about this, that or the other. And I used to think this was kind of, you know, it wasn't the muse. <laughs> and then, I, I won't go into why, it's quite a long story, but I, I was offered a commission by Joe Shapcott for an anthology that she was editing. And because of a misunderstanding, I wrote um, a different version of what was required. But it, it was a commission that freed me into or somehow kick-started um, the book that became Legion. So I then began to think, mm, the real thing about commissions is is what's in this for me, okay? <laughs> and I have accepted a number of commissions subsequently which, uh, where I've, I've thought, well, there is something in this for me. There really is. I think it's not so dissimilar, you know, from an opera's commission after all. So, you know, I looked at Gawain and, and, and thought, what's in this for me? Uh, similarly, the Minotaur, ditto the Corridor. I mean... I look at it, it's, it's, it's the new piece that we're doing, uh, which I think is Alderbrough next year and the Lindbury and one or two other places, which is the other side of the evening from the corridor. It's called The Cure. And it's a, a pre-Euripidean Medea. It's, it's about um, the moment when Medea and Jason arrive back in, in Iolcos with the Golden Fleece. And Jason says, you know, I'd like my father to be able to join in these celebrations, but he's old and near death, and can you rejuvenate him? And... and uh, um, and she says, yes, I can, and I will, because she's a, a witch. And, you know, I looked at that possibility to see what was in, in that for me. Um, and it, it's always, of course, a version of the story, and it's going to be my version, but it's going to be Harry's version too. And that's why we talk so much before we start about, you know, the way the thing's going to go. And, uh, you know, myth uh, is very interesting to us. Well, when I'm just talking to Harry about anything, I, we seem to go quite deep quite fast. And I did say once, um, just before the Minotaur was staged, first stage, that if Harry and I had a dream about the Minotaur, it would probably be a version of the same dream. We do think alike in, in that sort of a way. Um, it's very interesting. What Harry does is he, he, he works through, to some degree, through sketch and illustration, um, diagrams almost, you know. So we were at my house talking about how we were going to make this new piece the cure work and i've got little scraps of paper about sort of four inches by four inches that are for phone messages i just it's just old manuscripts of mine that i've torn up you know and i got a small handful of those and i started to write something down and harry said look and he reached across and took three or four of the pages it starts like this and he drew a picture he drew a, a diagram and then this and another diagram and suddenly i was doing this too i was saying so look here and it was a sort of it was a v lying on its side and it represented something in the in the piece and we both started working on those but 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 it's happened before i'll have a notebook and i'm making notes you know while we're talking and he'll take the notebook off me and start drawing uh you know what he wants i can we, we can both see what we both mean uh, by looking at it diagrammatically, which is interesting, I think. Never done that with anybody else. We should be speaking to Alison Chitty, and um, she was so important for the, for the Minotaur. Yeah. Well, Ali, Ali is, 
a very, very good designer. I mean, she has such clever ideas. You know, I sometimes look at what she's done. It's the same with Paul Pyant, who lo- who's lit a lot of our stuff. You look at what Al has done, and you think, oh, God, she's so clever. She is so clever. You know, how did she arrive at that? That's so good. Yeah, she has, she has you know, sort of what you want in a designer. I mean, she's thinking ahead uh, of me. I mean, if somebody said, what would you like this to, to look like? Mm. I mean, I'd have all these kind of, you know, rather obvious ideas, I expect. You can always count on Ali to come up with something that really, really works but is unexpected. Another big collaborator, one who was just mentioned by David, is Alison Chitty, someone who takes the music and translates it into her own visual language, covering every detail the opera audience sees on stage. Gathering some string and attaching it firmly to one end of the podcast, let us enter further the mind maze of Harrison Burtwistle. I spoke to Alison. Uh, well, I, I met Harry at the National Theatre because he was a resident composer there, uh, or head of music, I think his title was, something like that. And I was a resident designer there. And we spent a lot of time talking and meeting in the canteen. And But the minute we started working together, we really enjoyed that very much. And certainly... A very, very key moment was when we were working on The Late Shakespeare's with Peter Hall and we were in hours and hours and hours of rehearsal and at one point, um, completely nothing to do with what we should have been working on, Harry said to me, if, if we were to cut somebody's head off and they had to carry on singing for 13 minutes, do you think you could do it? And I, and I said... Yeah, sure. I'm sure. I'm sure we could. Thinking, oh, goodness knows what this is all about, or how I'd be able to do it. But I thought yes was the right answer. That was the first moment that we had talking about Gawain, although I didn't know it at the time. When did he next? When did he actually say, "Look, I've got something coming up, and I want you on board"? I don't think it was very long after. Actually, I don't think it was very long afterwards. And of course, it was early days for him. He hadn't written anything. He was. It was just he was thinking about it. And I think the following, it was probably within the next year. And then the following Christmas, I was going to stay with some friends in France. And he said, well, come and visit me because I'm not far away. I went to see him for three or four days and I took my sketchbooks and my pencils and everything. And when I got there, he, ha- he still hadn't written anything. He hadn't started. But I thought I was going to do sort of three days intensive, you know, get, get up to speed with everything and I'd read it and you know we didn't have a libretto even at that point I don't think and that was just a very very gentle early talks about it then we came back to London and um things that things really got going and the most marvelous thing about everything I've ever done with Harry's because he's creating it is I've just sort of been alongside while it's started to turn into whatever it's going to be I mean, Gawain I, it was really new territory for me, although I'd done small pieces of his. I remember looking at bits of the score with him, which I could sort of read music, but not really. I sort of have a visual relationship with reading music. And uh, in fact, Harry taught me to read these shapes and these sort of amazing uh, sort of great shapes of many, many instruments, all sort of doing a massive rise and fall in the middle of the piece. And I... I don't know, I began to work with him in that way and all the time drawing. Whenever we're working, I just sort of draw and show him things. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to kind of go further into the sort of the, the creative process. I, I think from what you said and speaking to other people, he, he sometimes has key moments and key characters in mind, like, like, like the Green Knight. 
Well, I mean, that's a gift for a designer, of course. And the casting was phenomenal with John Tomlinson. So, I mean, it was just heaven as a project. And and heaven because it was, you know, it was in Harry's area of myth, although it isn't exactly myth. And it was, it's just a wonderful, wonderful tale. The great thing with Harry is that you can show him things and he's got a phenomenal eye and a wonderful aesthetic and he can say yes or no very, very quickly. What do you think attracts him to the to these stories or maybe what attracts you to these stories? Oh, I'm led by Harry there. It's not my first love, although it's sort of become a great love. It is not my, I don't know, I don't have a first love really. I like storytelling in the broadest sense and and and, and the psychology of all that. Um, and if it's two people living in Hackney who speak to each other or two people living in Greece who sing to each other... I'm still as passionate about trying to work out how you do that. I don't know for Harry. It's it's a very, very good question. And it just feels right for him. I can't... Because he's so incredibly contemporary, but his work is so hugely classical. It feels right. It suits him. It feels like the right coat to be wearing. But I would love to see him do... Uh, I'd love to hear him write something about those people in Hackney. That would also be great. (laughs) And it is that complete trust in what he feels about things um, in terms of whether they're right or wrong or whether... But anyway, he knows. I mean, he's invented the thing. And um, I don't know. And because I I like to say I share... I mean, we share an aesthetic. We care about the same kinds of things. We like restraint. We like things expressed in a very simple and distilled way and um, presumably that's why he asked me to design the next opera every now and again <laughs> you know but um, no I think we share that aesthetic and also we're very preoccupied with storytelling and and the clarity of that and the simplicity of that and he's sometimes very disarming because he says well what do you mean what do you mean there isn't going to be any I don't know, in Gawain there aren't going to be any uh, dead animals. There have to be dead animals. You know, what what have they killed? How are we doing that? Where are they? You know, there's no way you can say, oh, well, I thought that maybe. You know, I mean, you've got to deal with it. And that's only just a reminder, but it's, it's a simple clarity, which I like very much. And we share that, I think. I was the only other thing I was going to say was about working together on the Minotaur early, early on. Stephen Langridge, who directed the Minotaur, and I went to Wiltshire and worked with Harry in his studio when he had, I think he'd written probably the first, I don't know, half an hour or something. And he showed us the score, all handwritten, absolutely exquisite. There needs to be an exhibition, actually, of just his scores. I mean, they are the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And um, we, this was our sort of first session with him. He just took us, took us through it. I mean, there was no, you know, I, I can't read music and understand. When I look at something, I can't hear anything. I, I don't have that skill or ability at all. And, um, but he took us through it moment by moment, you know, this this piece starts with, you know, 45 seconds of the lowest note that you can possibly imagine in the history of time. You know, then there's silence. Then there's three minutes of, you know, whatever. And Stephen made notes. We both made suggestions and I drew. And I now have this 
series of drawings, which was, you know, the first half an hour of uh, Minotaur. Um, and it, some of it was connected and some of it wasn't and some of it stayed. It was yeah. interesting. Yeah. I mean, we wanted, we had to work out how to express this sea, this rolling sea, you know, and very, very, on that very first day we were drawing about how we should deal with that and what we should. Anyway, that is such a fantastic work process. I can't tell you. So, yeah. you know, people say precious or, whatever, you know, I mean, it's just really, really good. Yeah. And surely the best work must come out of a director and a designer and the composer all working together with that. You know, obviously the libretto has already been uh, written by David Harson in that case. And so that is established and it evolves a little bit. But, you know, we're then working from the libretto and creating, you know, this next, I mean, it's marvellous. I'm trying to get a sense of scale or and work involved in a production. I mean, I mean, maybe for for the case of the Barbican, let's go back to Gawain. But could maybe maybe you you think of the the smallest item that you've designed through to the to the biggest item and the sort of fill us in on what what's involved. Well, this is this is a sort of a week's a week's work now to talk about this. How to be a designer, what you do, all that. Um, really hard. Yeah, I think my my mantra is always about. Simple storytelling, clarity, distillation, simplicity, restraint, no clutter, the whole thing driven, the whole nature of whatever you make on stage driven by what happens and what it is, rather than anything that you would lay on top of it. And I've always called myself a designer, not a decorator, and I think that's very important for me. I mean, when people say, what do you do? I, I, I always say I design everything you see except for the lighting. And that goes from somebody lifting up a cup of tea to, you know, the whole of the Grail Hall appearing in Parsifal, which I've just done recently, which is on the larger side. But, you know, I'm thinking, I was thinking about, you know, you're saying about little things. We, I mean, anything, even if it's a hanky in somebody's pocket, I'm, I want it to be the right one and I want it to be the right colour. The minute they bring these hankies out, you know, they can, you know, you have everybody wearing grey and somebody brings out a red hanky and to blow their nose. The spirit of that moment is totally changed. They bring out a grey hanky, nothing happens. I, w I wanted to talk about the idea of success because a, a lot of Harry's um, work, which a lot, a lot of the work that you've been involved with as well, has been a fantastic success. Why do you think, why do you think they've captured the public's imagination? Oh, um, lots of difficult questions. Um, well, they're epic pieces, aren't they? But, I mean, well, they're not all epic pieces. Some of them are charming, little, exquisite miniatures. You know, I wouldn't say in a million years that I understand Harry's music or anything. It's completely disarming. It completely takes you over. It's thrilling. It's fantastic. It's surprising, exciting, you know. Um, and I've... I'm sort of hooked on it, you know, and I imagine that's what's happened to audiences too. And he's doing extraordinary things all the time. Uh, by that, I mean that you wouldn't want to miss the next one. We talked about the, we started with the severed head. One of the other things that's come up quite a few times in, in various interviews is, is uh, well, it's been described as, as the best, the most exquisite pantomime horse. Yeah, in Gawain with, with the Green Knight, Green Knight's horse, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, you don't know what you're going to do. <laughs> when you start designing something and you read the libretto and you read that this green knight is going to come into King Arthur's court on a green horse, 
you think fine okay yeah so what's the next thing oh yeah and then the door's got to knock you know and then actually we uh, thinking back the, one of the ways in which we developed that horse was we did some workshops and if anybody ever thinks it's not worth spending any money on workshops developing new pieces it's completely wrong i mean we spend a week or two weeks i think developing uh, Gawain with a group of actors but in the end I mean that was just the practical reality of how we were going to get John sitting up at horseback height in the end it was irrelevant that because what its nature was on the outside made you believe it was a horse it was nothing to do with the two brilliant guys who were inside actors phenomenal who in the end we put in Dr Martin boots so they had sort of kind of hooves I mean it's completely nothing to do with period but it felt good their movement was fabulous but actually its surface and a most wonderful prop maker Duncan Dow who then ran the Royal Opera House had a great skill for making has a great skill for making sculptural things and he and I worked together on this and I really give him credit for making it so magical and completely realizing what my, was sort of my dreams you know it was oh, it was a marvelous thing of well let's talk about the minotaur because i mean half man half beast you know we know not least from picasso's wonderful drawings what you know what he could look like um but the driving the driving factor for john's look in the minotaur was when we realized and again we didn't realize this early on but um i remember stephen coming to this very studio and saying but but do you realize he sings for i can't remember how long it is now 17 minutes or something and we'd got various versions about how we thought he might look and we and we actually sort of invented it here. We we just started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Um, I just started drawing, as Stephen was saying, talking about the problem. Out of that drawing, sort of, that head 
became a reality, which was just to take the contours of the shape of, um, and to make it as a great skeletal shape, but at the same time use John's body and how he was to make the man's shape. I mean, as we developed it, it went on and I took the spine down his spine. And, and that I think the spine only came out of something that John said when we were in rehearsal. That was very late on the spine and it was gorgeous, that detail. It basically, you know, Stephen was saying, sorry, he's got to sing, how are we going to hear him? And, you know, I was going, oh, I you know, what are we going to do? And out of that, I mean, it, you know, some I think sometimes people think that you, the director sits in one study, you know, with his head in the score and a libretto and the designer sits in a studio with a head in the score and the libretto and with a sketch pad and a model and, and, and then you sort of, it's all done and you put it all together. But it's absolutely backward-forward collaboration, which is completely, you know, and there's nothing like uh, anything to focus you as somebody saying, well, what do you mean? I mean, they're not going to be sing ever singing that. What, what would it be like? And you think, oh, I better think of something very quickly. And you do. And I've got the sketchbooks with the, with the development of that drawing. We then, having done the drawing, I mean, we worked with John. I mean, he was so patient. I... We worked with John for months on this thing. We started the head probably a year early before we even went on stage because we thought if this doesn't work and everybody isn't happy about it acoustically, there is no show. And we went backwards and forwards. Claire Murphy, the costume supervisor, and I went backwards and forwards down to John's house with with samples of shapes and um, and taking photographs of him. And, and my final costume drawings are out of those shapes of his body and putting these kind of but to get the proportion right and then make it acoustic work acoustically and then then I can't remember exactly what point we had the idea to light up the structure inside so that when he became the man that suddenly John's face was stronger I mean it was never really strong but it was stronger I can't even remember who thought of that but you know, key part of what that, I mean, I'd like to say mask, but it isn't, it's a sort of head. Key part of what that was, that we would light it from the inside. Very difficult to do, you know, but gorgeous, gorgeous in the end. And and John, John's patience with the fittings, we used to count the length of the fittings by how many cups of tea he had to have. So we'd say this is a five, tea, five cup of tea fitting, sorry, John, you know, <laughs> this is only a one this is a quickie, you know. I mean, and for him to stand around in his knickers with a head on for hours and hours. But we all loved working together and we'd all worked together on Gawain and just kept on going. <laughs> I'm not saying it's always easy. I'm not saying it's always a pleasure because it's incredibly hard. And I mean, I've got drawings of, of the Minotaur. This is how sad my life is. You know, when I, I'm sitting in bed, waking up at night, drawing things that I'm thinking that maybe that's another way for it to go. How can we pull all this together and get this to be, you know... Marvellous, though. I've, I'm a, I've just had the most fantastic time working with him, and we're just about to do another one. Hooray!
And finally, we were given a rare opportunity to speak to the composer himself. I found him in his London-based publisher's office in a rare trip out of his Wiltshire home. So let's find out his thoughts on collaboration and whether he was particular about who he worked with. Are you very picky, put it that way? Are you very picky about who you work with? Well, I would be. I mean, with David Harson, we have a, a very interesting um, relationship in that sense. And it's um, an understanding and... Uh, got it very much at the moment now um and good collaboration is a is a game of ping pong mm-hmm. or tennis yeah i mean I, I have mentioned things to alison about something and which she will take on board but she take on board the essence you know not mm-hmm. a, a complete description and if she, and if she doesn't do it she would have a it's because she's got a better idea than i do yeah, and in collaboration, you always you always want a good collaboration. Is they they give you something within the context of what you're talking about, but even more. Yeah, you do something you would not expect to be there, and that has certainly happened uh, in in the production of things. And and I had um, I've seen I've seen productions of my things could not, as far as I'm concerned, could not be worse. But then I've got something at one time few years, two or three years back, I had two productions of Punch and Judy in, in London at exactly the same time. And one production was, was very good, and it's an old production, and I've seen it before. Perfectly, really, really good. I said, oh, God, I'm not going to have to see another one. Yeah? And I couldn't... Im- I mean, it was so good. It was done... The, is it The Young Vic? You, know, you could not, and also it brought about. Uh, I could have brought things into it you know, that I could never imagine would be there. So there, so there, there are good things and bad things. I mean, the point about the notes and music is formed, and and the the amount of what you can do with that is is pretty set, and and the rest of it is is finding the truth of something and telling and actually telling, finding a way. A, Saying what it's about, and um, and exactly what we've just been been talking about. It's it's yeah, a different collaborator, maybe even someone. I mean, who, who's be described as a, mu- a muse is uh, Sir John Sir John Tomlinson, who was obviously in Gawain and then and then the yeah. Minotaur and other pieces. How did that that sort of relationship begin, and, and what do you what do you see in him, and how do you write for him? Well, uh, uh, we go back a long way because. And he sang in the first production of Punch and Judy, I think. Yeah, I'm sure he did. I'm sure he's on the recording anyway. Yeah, I think that's what... I think he was on the recording. And I think that I've had a sort of eye to the possibilities of things that I've done which were parts for him. I'm sure that um, it it shows him in, in, in Gawain. But I think that in the case of the Minotaur... I'm sure that it was somewhere in my thing that it's a suitable thing for him to do. Yeah. yeah. But to write for him, well, well, it's sort of there when you write for him. And um, I don't think specifically I, I think it, I like to think that I have good instinct for it. Is it nice? I mean, get somebody else who's, who's involved is uh, Martin Brabins. Um, should it be taken for granted that someone maybe understands your music, who's experienced, and, and you, you were saying right at the beginning of the interview about how your music should be heard a, a few times. Is that the same from the performer's or, or conductor's point of view? Yeah. 
But you do get sort of situations, um, not so much with with conductors. I never know what conductors think. Well, what, I never know what some conductors think. Um, one of the things that they have to, you have know, got to have the psychology of the orchestra in that if you get the if they get the sense that the conductor's not with the music, then they're not going to be with it. Yeah. Yeah. I've just had a performance in in Ireland and of uh, Earth Dances. Now, it's one of the most difficult pieces of orchestral music ever written in some ways. And, um, but, you know, it was done, it was wonderful. I'm not saying that uh, yeah, technically it was, you know, absolutely, because there wasn't, in, there wasn't enough rehearsal. There's never enough rehearsal, yeah. But it, it was certainly in the spirit of the music and played absolutely. I thought, I thought it was wonderful. Mm. Maybe compared to how you would hear it on the record, there's just something, if they, if they get it right, there's something electric in the room. yeah. Uh, well, performance. I mean, that you've got the word. There is an electricity, and and the and the and this you get a sort of sense of the audience, and um, and it's got to be there though. There got to be enough people. <laughs> On the next edition, we take a journey into the layered architecture of the music itself, and here again from the composer, alongside those who have first-hand experience of being inside this living and breathing form of music. We hear, amongst others, from conductor Martin Brabins on the composer's legacy. If you're a composer or performer, you want people to listen to you. You want people to hear your music. So, you know, there will, of course, be a, a part of him that is absolutely thrilled. He's, uh, he's got such a lot of incredible original music inside him that we should all be very proud to have him as a, as a, as a British composer because, you know, he really is one of... One of the greats now, and he's one of the elder statesmen of the, of the musical world, and we love him for it. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. Here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on ACAST, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. 